Okay, we're looking at Philippians chapter 4. We're going to look at the first three verses. They're printed in your bulletin. If you don't have a Bible with you, they're on page 7. And we got two pages to take sermon notes today, pages 7 and 8, I guess because the scripture is so, so short. So uh, you can turn there and give ear. This is, this is the word of God that we're about to read. Okay, we say that every week, but this is important. This is God speaking to us. And so as I read, we're reading three verses today. This is God addressing the church by his spirit and through his word. So give ear now. This is, God, this is God's word. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat you, Odia, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. This is God's word. We're starting a new mini-series this week. We've been going through the book of Philippians. We've seen, when will I be happy with my life? When will I be happy with others? When will I be happy with God? This week we're going to start a new mini-series on when will I be happy with myself? Okay, we've broken down the chapters into these four areas. In the next three weeks we're going to look at this issue of when will I be happy with me? Okay, when will I be content? When will I be excited? When will I be happy with who I am? And as we start today, we're going to see that being happy with yourself begins with your relationship with others. Okay, it begins with how you relate to others. We're tempted to think. Okay, the, uh, the, the besetting lie that, that, that tries to infect us in our thinking is that we'll be happy in conflict when others see that we're right. You know, you've had that experience where if you just convince somebody of what you really mean and then they finally understand what you mean, then you'll be happy. And, and your goal is to get them to understand your point of view, to, to see that you're right. Paul in this passage stands that thinking completely upside down and he shows it that there's a much better way to live. There's a much better way to approach conflict. There's a much better way to approach disagreements and personal relationships. And so in this passage, we're going to see four thoughts, four realities, really, four steps that are going to change how you think and how you act in conflict with others. Okay? And these four realities are going to make you happier. Okay? These four realities will make you happier, especially when you're in conflict. So let me give them to you now, and then uh, we'll come back to them more slowly. First, you need to remember who they really are. Okay? Second, identity comes before command. Third, agree in the Lord means honor the best in the other. And then fourth, why is this important? Okay, so that's where we're going to go. First, let's look at remember who they really are. This is verse 1. Paul starts this new chapter by saying, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. This is Paul's heart for the church. And so it just jumps off the page. Is Is this your heart for the church? Is this how you feel? Can you say this about the people that you're in relationship with? Can you say this in the relationships where you have conflict? You know, Paul is about to confront a problem in verse 2, but look, this is how he starts. He begins this confrontation by affirming them and, their, and his relationship with them. 
Okay, he says, my brothers. You know, and that's an inclusive word, me and my brothers and sisters. He's saying, y'all are my family. You're my family. We're in this together. You know, and I think that's really easy to forget, isn't it? When we get into conflict, we forget, oh, yeah, 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 that's right. We're supposed to love each other. You know, we're, we're brothers and sisters here. Um, he says, whom I love and long for. Overarching everything I'm about to tell you, I want you to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that I love you, that I care about you, and that everything I'm about to say to you is, is, is regulated. It's controlled. It's under, the, it's under the banner of love that I have for you. And it's not just that I love you because I have to, but I long for you. Paul's talking to this church and he's saying, I long for you. I wish I could be with you. I would love to be with you. I'm looking forward to being with you. This is the banner over everything that I love you and I long for you. And it it made me think, do you know someone like this? When someone comes, you know somebody that really no matter what they say to you, you know that they love you. Like even when it's bad, even when they have bad stuff, they got to come, they got to get in your kitchen, they have to confront you on something. You know that they just, that deep underneath everything, everything that motivates them is love. And so you can receive them, right? You can receive their words because you know it's coming out of the context of love. That's what Paul is doing here with verse 1. Are you that way for other people? Do other people have that sense from you when you're in disagreement? Paul is telling us we need to remember who people are. He goes on, he says, you're my joy and my crown. When was the last time you said that to somebody when you confronted them? You make me happy. You are my crown. Paul looks at these folks, and as he gets ready to confront them, you know, it's like he's, he's reminding them of who they are. He's remembering himself who they really are, and he's saying, you have been following Jesus. You are my, it's my joy to see you living out the reality of Jesus' resurrection. And, he's, and not just that, but when I see your changed lives, when I see the way you live, that's my reward. That's my, you are my crown. To see you following Jesus is my crown. And so again, is this how you feel about the church? I mean, this is Paul expressing his heart. Is this how you feel about your friends when they disagree with you? Do you remember this? Um, are they your family, your love? Do you remember that they're your joy and your crown? This is who God says they are. This is how Paul addresses the church. He invites us to follow him there. And so when you get discouraged with people, sometimes it's just as simple as remembering this. I know this is how it works for me. You know, I think I start to feel that angst. I start to get upset. I start to get angry. I start to want to lash out. And then I think, oh, wait, wait, hold on. (laughs) This is my brother or my sister. And something starts to happen. I think, wait a minute. I love this person. Like, I really do. And sometimes I'm convincing myself that I love the person. But then when I start doing that, I, it's like I get filled up with love. I'm remembering who they are. It's like I'm preaching to myself who they are. They're my family. They're my joy. They're my crown. And when that happens, it, it sort of generates grace within us. It renews grace in us. We talk about grace renewal here at Harbor, and that's the process. You know, when I remember this, it fills me with love. It actually makes me happy when I remember who people are. And so that's the first thing Paul does with verse 1. He says, remember who they really are. If you have a conflict with somebody, remember this and remember these things about them. Well, this brings us to point 2. 
this is that identity comes before command. Okay, this is building off. This is joining verses 1 and verse 2. Identity comes before command. Not only do we need Paul's heart in verse 1, but we need the order that Paul goes in. Okay, verse 1 comes before verse 2. Isn't that profound? Write that down. Verse 1 comes before verse 2. Actually, if you remember that, this will change how you relate to people. It will change everything about you because Paul is going to confront something, right? And, but the way he does it makes all the difference in the world. We talk about how the gospel differs from religion at Harbor, right? We talk about the gospel changes everything. And this is an amazing example of how that applies. When someone is in error, when there is conflict, when someone's doing something wrong, religion typically comes alongside, even Christian religion will come alongside and say, well, you're obviously not truly a member of, of the faith if you're struggling with this. Right? Have you ever heard that? Have you ever said that to somebody? Maybe you're not really a Christian if you're dealing with this. You know, if, if you've got this problem in your life, chances are good that you're just not, you don't really believe. And what you need to do is you need to become a Christian. Right? The gospel, though, does the opposite. Okay, the, the gospel takes the exact opposite approach. Instead of robbing people of their blessings, what the gospel does is it actually affirms the blessings and the promises of God to people before you give them a command. Before you confront people, you affirm who they are. Okay, so identity comes before command. And this is huge because I think if we're honest, the only way that we ever really grow is by the power and the blessings of God, right? And so think about it. Religion completely leaves us impotent in terms of changing, right? If religion says, I'll give you these blessings back, I'll say that you're in the faith, I'll say that you're really a Christian after you clean up your life, what you've done is you've just taken away the power to change. I can't change unless I have the blessings of God. I can't change unless I am loved by God, unless I am God's joy and his crown, unless God loves me and is in a relationship with me, unless I am reminded that I have the blessings of God. I can't change. I'm stuck, right? And so religion would say, if you're out of line, well, you're not really a Christian. The gospel says the opposite. The gospel says I mean, I love it. We actually just read it, right? Romans 6. What does Paul do? It's my favorite place where Paul does this. The, the, the question gets asked in Romans 6, verse 2. Should we keep sinning so we can get more grace? And Paul says, no. And then he says this. He says, don't you know? Like, look at it. <clears throat> if you flip in your bulletin back, look at what Paul says in Romans 6. He says, do you not know that all of us who are baptized into Christ have been baptized into his death? It's like Paul's coming, it's almost like he's kind of laughing, like, oh, you didn't get it, or you forgot, or it's like, don't you remember? Wait a minute, if you believe in Jesus, you died with him. You're dead to sin. You have a new relationship to sin. Sin doesn't control you anymore. Your old self was crucified with him. And Paul's saying, like, don't you remember that? Like, I guess you've forgotten, and so I'm happy to remind you of that. This is the opposite of what religion does. Right? Religion says, well, if you're living in this sin, then clearly you haven't been united to Christ in his death. And so you're out. Paul says, if you're living in sin, if you need to be confronted, you need to remember your identity first so that you'll have the encouragement, so that you'll know that you have the strength, the power, so that you can actually, so that you can grow. 
Does that make sense? Yeah, so Paul doesn't take away our hope or our blessings until after we clean up our life. Paul affirms and restores to us the hope and the blessings so that we can grow and make progress in our lives. And if you can get this, if you can understand that verse 1 in this passage comes before verse 2, it will change everything about how you relate to people. It'll change everything about how you confront people when confrontation is needed. When we do this right, when we actually approach people the way Paul does in verses 1 and 2, when we put identity before the command, when we remind people of who they are, what we're doing is we're reminding people that God is already at work in them and they can derive comfort and assurance from that. We remind them, we're painting the picture of Jesus and how they are being swept up in the story of Jesus' own death and resurrection. You know, and what happens is if we do it right, the person that we're talking to wants to follow Jesus, right? They see their story in his story. They want to follow him. And then when the command finally comes, the person says, well, of course I want to live that way. I mean, of course that's who I want to be. And so you get the picture, right? I mean, that identity comes before commands. I think if we do this right, the command actually ends up teaching us the gospel. Okay? Because what happens is the command then comes and shows us the kind of person that the gospel makes us be. Okay? Because I could tell you, I just did. I said, don't you remember? Like all of you, if you believe in Jesus this morning, you died to sin. You're dead to sin. You're alive from the dead. You died with Jesus and are raised with him. You are a new creature. Sin has no, long, no longer has any power over you. You might think, well, that's great, but what does that actually mean? Okay? Well, then if I come to you and I say, you need to deal with conflict in a much more healthy way, that shows you what the new life is that you've been raised to. That shows you how the power of God works in your life. Okay? And so the command actually teaches you what the gospel does. I just think that's exciting. So then the commands, far from being things that condemn us, can actually be things that encourage us to understand how God's power works in us specifically. And that's exciting. And so for us, for us, when you need to confront somebody, instead of saying, just practically speaking, instead of saying, look, how can you call yourself a Christian and do this? I mean, because that's what happens, right? This is how we approach people. If we're not careful, we need to learn Paul's pattern and say this. You're doing this in your life? Like, don't, you, don't you remember that, you're, that you are a Christian? Don't you know that Jesus is in you, that you have God's power and his spirit in you? And I think that God's power, his spirit, being united to Jesus, I don't think that fits with this, with this behavior. So let's talk through this together. It makes all the difference in the world makes all the difference in the world. So when you approach someone, you need to assure them both of your love and of Christ's love before you give them the confrontation. Okay? Well, this then brings us to our third point. Third point is that we need to agree in the Lord. And this means honor the best in the other. So agree in the Lord, honor the best in the other. This is verses two and three. In these two verses, Paul deals with the conflict that existed in the church between Euodia and Syntyche. 
Okay, these are two women in the church. And it's interesting because Paul, what does, Paul doesn't do, he doesn't take sides. Okay? He treats them both exactly the same. What does he tell them? He doesn't say who's right and who's wrong. He simply says, agree in the Lord. Okay? Agree in the Lord. Now, this is big because for us, at least for me, but I know for a lot of people, it is so easy to malign people who disagree with us. Right? If someone disagrees, it is so easy to paint them in the worst possible light. It's so easy to take one thing that they said, ignore the reasons for it, take the one thing that they said and try to make it look as awful as it possibly can and tell other people about it, right? To paint somebody else in the worst possible light. We do this, uh, we do this in politics. We do this in theology in the church. We do this in ministry in, in terms of ideas about what the church should do, what the church should be. You know, this is a huge temptation. Um, you know, just one example. I mean, some people... I don't know if you've ever heard this kind of thing go on, but some people would say, you want to reach out? You want to, you want to bring more people into the church? Well, we're not even taking care of the people that are here. Right? We're not even caring for the folks that we have. How in the world can we add? Oh, I, I know the thing. You know what? You don't really care about having a real spiritual impact. You just want a big church. You're all about numbers. So you don't really care about changing people's lives. You just want to amass a big, giant church and, and, and just to pad your ego. I mean, you see how that works? You start with a disagreement about what you should do. Someone wants to reach out and somebody else says no, and then you, you go to the conclusion and say, oh, well, you're all about ego. Right? You paint people in the worst part. Well, then the other side comes back and says, oh, so you don't want to reach out to the city? <laughs> really? So you don't care. You, you just want to create this holy huddle full of only Christians where everything is safe and protected and, and no one can get in. Well, you, you really just don't care about the world. God loves the world, but you clearly don't. Right? I mean, these are the kinds of things that happen, right? These are the kinds of things that get into our hearts. These are the kinds of temptations that creep in. And, you know, wherever you are, I mean, if you feel some of this already, I mean, if you have these kinds of conflicts, Paul is addressing you. Okay, we don't know what the conflict was exactly between Euodia and Syntyche. You know, we know that they were women, they were, they were leaders in the church. They were co-laborers in the gospel with Paul. We don't know what the issue was. But with leaders, this temptation gets even stronger to go awry. Why? Well, because leaders have strong opinions, right? They have ideas about the way things should be. Leaders also tend to be busy, and so they make quick judgments and sometimes don't slow down enough to understand an opposing view because they're busy, you know, aiming at what they think is most important. And so we just need to ask, like, at this point right now, do you have a disagreement with anybody in the church? Is there some area where you are in conflict with someone and it's not being dealt with? When you hear Paul say, Euodia and Syntyche, do you hear him saying your name and someone else's? Wouldn't that be scary? I mean, think about that for a sec. Imagine being in Philippi in 55 AD. You know, this letter comes from Paul. The whole church in Philippi gathers, and they're all, because that's what happened. Paul, the letter comes. Epaphroditus delivers this letter, you know, and they read it out loud. And there you are, right, the whole congregation. And it would be like, <laughs> you're reading through this thing, and, and all of a sudden you get to this place, and it's like, Candace, Jackie, agree in the Lord. 
Mark, Bill, agree on the Lord. I mean, could you imagine that? Getting called out. You know, if, if I knew, I mean, here's the bummer. I don't know of a conflict. Otherwise, I would have called you out. So you're lucky. You're lucky. I was thinking, oh, come on, Lord, tell me. What's, it? what's here? What's here? What could I name? No, I wouldn't have done that. Um, but th- could you imagine that? If you were there, if you were Euodia or Syntyche, like you just sort of curl up, right? The Apostle Paul, inspired scripture as he writes, sends this letter, and he names you in the church because you're not getting along, because you're not agreeing with someone else in the Lord. And to me, I think the fact that Paul names Euodia and Syntyche, it shows that God cares about you and your conflict. Okay, this is what happens. God is calling you right now. If you are in the midst of conflict, God is calling you right now and he's saying, you need to deal with it. You need to deal with it. And we can back up in terms of this happiness. Happiness will not happen for you personally when you're in conflict with someone else, when someone else thinks that you're wrong. Because what happens? We tend to lash out, right? Sometimes it's, it's external. Sometimes we, it just broods in our hearts. You know, we, we seek to justify ourselves. We have to prove that we're right and they're wrong. And if they won't listen, then you'll find other people, enough people to where they'll think you're right. You know, and then it makes the conflict grow and it gets worse. But if they never see that you're right, it just sticks in your craw, Right? You see them, and every time you see them, you're reminded that there's this conflict. And then, and it just, it gets to you, right? I mean, you know this. You've lived in this. But then the double problem is that there, it, there will come a time when you can live with it. And that's not a sign of maturity. That's actually a sign of the hardness of your heart. Okay? Because what happens is after a while, you'll get to the point where you actually don't feel that internal need to be reconciled. And then your heart has become harder. You have settled for so much less than the best. And in that place, you can't live out verse 1 toward that person. You can't think of them as your love and your long for, your joy and your crown. And so at that point, you've resigned yourself to live with relationships that drain and sap your happiness rather than have relationships that contribute to your personal happiness. Well, so how do we get out of that? Right? If you're down that spiral and you're, you're spiraling down, what's the way out? Well, it's really just verse 2. It's, it's what Paul says. You need to learn to agree in the Lord. Okay? You need to agree in the Lord. What does that mean? Well, I'm going to give you five steps on what it means to agree in the Lord. Okay, these are going to be kind of quick, a little bit rapid fire. Um, some of them is stuff we've already looked at. But for the first step in terms of agreeing in the Lord is the identity step. Okay? You have to remember verse 1. Remember who they are. Okay? They are your love. They are your family. They are your long for. They are your joy and your crown. Okay? They are in the Lord. They're trying to follow Jesus in their lives. And you need to remember that. And so it's the identity step first. Second step is the motivation step. Okay, to agree with someone in the Lord, you have to agree that the other person isn't evil in their heart. Okay? They're not trying to destroy the church or you or the world. Okay? And because if we're not careful, this is exactly how we treat other people. Right? We think that the damage that they're doing, that they're consciously trying to inflict that damage. 
right? We look and see the negative side of their idea, and we assume that they're trying. They're consciously promoting evil. This happens in politics all the time, right? This is the only defense that, that you ever hear in terms of talk radio on both sides of the aisle here. It doesn't matter what they're trying to do. All that matters is that you can show how what they're doing is going to lead to this evil, and they're actually personally trying to make this evil happen, right? We do this in the church. And so the motivation step means that you need to believe the person isn't evil, isn't trying to cause damage. Now, this doesn't mean that their opinions or their actions won't cause harm, okay? This doesn't mean that you don't have a discussion. We'll talk about that in a second. But this means that you acknowledge and believe that their motivation isn't evil. Okay? They are in the Lord. They are trying to follow Jesus. And this takes humility because sometimes you might not be able to imagine it, but you have to at least entertain the possibility that they might have a reason for what they think that you haven't considered. Okay? So that's the motivation step. So if you've done the identity step, remembering who they are, the motivation step, now you're ready for the third step, which is the conversation step. Okay, now you're ready to talk to them, and you're probably not ready to talk to them before. Okay, you've got to do steps one and two before you actually talk to them. And this is where you ask the person what they think. You know, and this isn't, you know, how in the world can you justify your stupid position, right? That's not how you start the conversation, right? You say... And Kent did an amazing job of this, I don't know, a month ago or something when he was up here talking about his experience. But you know, he does this really well. It's, it's look, can you help me? I'm trying to better understand your position or your reasons or your thinking on this. And can you just help me understand why you think this is the right thing to do? Okay? Now, in the conversation step, you listen. Okay? You don't go into the conversation... With, with your guns all ready to blaze, right? You don't go in with your arguments. The conversation step is designed for you to understand, okay? It's for you to, to actually converse, okay? Oftentimes, we go into conversations like that. Even if we've been prayed up and, and we're, we feel like we're ready spiritually to have the conversation, we go in and we just, we're waiting for them to say one thing and then we're going to dump on them. We're going to vomit our opinions, okay? You're there to have a conversation where you're really trying to understand, and that's, that's the fourth step, okay? So we got identity, identity, motivation, conversation. The fourth step is the perspective step, okay? So as you have had the conversation, then the fourth step is the perspective, um, and this is the hardest step, okay? This is really, really difficult. You actually need to enter into their perspective, okay? And you have to see it well enough, You have to see and understand their perspective well enough so that you could explain their perspective, not just to yourself, but to others. Okay? You have to explain their perspective to other people and show how their perspective can honor God and is needed in the church. Okay? I mean, this is hard. I mean, just, this is hard. This is really hard. But this is where, this is what it means to agree in the Lord. Let me say it again. You need to get to the point where you see their perspective well enough so that you could explain their perspective, not just to yourself, but to others in a way that would show how their perspective can honor God and is needed in the church. The best quote on this that I've read is from Tim Keller. 
And he talks about this in terms of the way Christians and non-Christians need to discuss the, you know, need to, need to dialogue. But I think how much more does it apply in the church? He says this, each side must learn to represent the other's argument in its strongest and most positive form. And he says, only then is it safe to disagree with it. And let me say, when you go through that process, just those four, I haven't even given you the fifth step yet, but when you go through those four steps, identity, motivation, conversation, and perspective, at that point, you're now ready to have a healthy conversation about your disagreement. Because at that point, you really do understand not just what they're saying, but why they're saying it. You understand why they're motivated in the way that they are. And then you can actually have a wise conversation where you say, I think I get what you're saying. I'm not sure that that's the wisest way to accomplish what you're trying to accomplish. And if you can say that, if you get to the point where they believe that you're honest and sincere in saying, I don't believe that's the wisest way to accomplish what you want to accomplish, you're in a radically different place than if you start out by saying, how in the world did you get this? <laughs> or where in the world do you come, uh, you know, come across with this opinion? And so now all of this leads to a fifth step. And the fifth step is the revelation step. Okay, Because if you go through this process, you will have a revelation. Okay, You will have a revelation. And you will understand, maybe for the first time, that the church is a body and not a field of grass. Okay, The church is a body and not a field of grass. What do I mean by that? Well, I mean, and this is a revelation for, for a lot of people that we are not all the same, okay? We are not all supposed to have the same opinions, the same callings, or the same functions. We're not all supposed to look the same. We're not all supposed to talk the same. We're not all supposed to do the same things. God says that we are as diverse as a body, okay? In 1 Corinthians 12, the purpose of the body is one, right? The body's purpose is unified, the body is designed to create, maintain, and restore healthy living, right? But within the body, there's a radical diversity of functions. And so let me give you just something that, that hit me. Think about the mouth and the colon, okay? I'm not trying to be crass, but I want to paint this picture for you because especially in the church, there are conflicts that rise to the point where mouths think that the other side are colons, Okay, but, but go with me here. Mouths and colons don't have a whole lot in common, right? The mouth doesn't want to go anywhere near the colon, right? The mouth doesn't want to see anything that's in the colon, right? The mouth, in some ways, wishes he could go his whole life and never have to, I mean, never get close to the colon. They're, they're far apart, right? Okay, so you, you get the idea. The point is, when the mouth steps back and looks at the function of the body, the mouth is thankful that the colon is there. Okay, do you see that? I mean, we have radically different ideas, even in one church, about what the church should be, about what the church should do, about how the church should reach out, about how the church should take care of itself, about how the church should best serve the city. You know, and the revelation comes when you realize that in order to reach the radical diversity of a city, you have to have a radical diversity of callings and functions 
in the church. Okay? And so for Paul, again, we don't know what conflict he was dealing with with Euodia and Syntyche, but these two ministry leaders were at war with each other in some way. And Paul was saying, look, not one's right and one's wrong, but he was saying, you need to agree in the Lord. You need to remember that you're both in the Lord. You need to remember that you're both motivated for the love of the gospel and the love of Jesus. You need to actually have a conversation about this. You need to gain each other's perspectives and then experience the revelation that in the midst of your diversity, you're both needed for the gospel to succeed in the city. And that's the call. That's the call for us. Now, when you try to do that perspective step, it's going to be hard because as you listen to somebody else's ideas, as you listen to what they think is important, you're probably going to think that their perspective doesn't care enough about your concern. But guess what? Your perspective doesn't care enough about their concern. Okay? And the idea here is that, you ha- is that in order for us to really reach the city. When you think about the kinds of issues that our city faces, when you think about the kinds of problems, even just that we deal with here in the church, let alone in the city, right? The radical diversity of the problems in, the, you know, in our church, we need people who are wired differently, who think differently, who are called and function differently in the body with different perspectives. If we don't have that diversity, there will be people that we will not be able to help. Now, what's interesting is that Paul tacks right on to this command to agree in the Lord. Um, Verse 3, he knows, Paul knows this is difficult. And he knows that sometimes it's so difficult that you cannot do it on your own. Okay, you cannot sit down with the other person and actually come to the conclusion that you need to come to or go through this process together. And when that happens, you need help. You need help. Look at verse 3. Yes, I ask you also, true companion... Help these women. True companion, you know, the scholars debate, it's probably Epaphroditus, the, the, the person that came with the letter. Um, you know, different opinions. It doesn't really matter. The point is that Paul called on somebody in the midst of, the, you know, of that church who was there present when the letter was being read. He called on someone to offer assistance because as sometimes as hard as we try, as hard as we try to understand someone else's perspective, as hard as we try to get to the point where we can champion their, what is good in their opinions, we need help. And so there are times you know, where, where Jesus would push us in this way. He would say, Jesus says in Matthew 18, if someone's you know, doing something wrong, you go to them and confront them, and if they repent, that's great. If they don't, then bring someone else with you. Okay? And there are times when you'll have legitimate disagreements in the church where you'll need to go to someone else and, and say, and this isn't you go and prep them for how you're right and they're wrong. This is you going to someone else and saying, you know, I'm really struggling here. I've got a conflict with somebody. We've got a disagreement, and we've tried to hash this out. We've tried to discuss this, and we haven't yet come to a place where we're agreeing in the Lord. Will you please come and help me understand them? If you're having the discussion with the other person before someone else gets involved, you can say, you know what, I feel like at the end of this conversation, we're still not able to agree in the Lord. We're still, I'm still struggling to understand you. I still feel like you're not quite understanding me. Would it be okay if we together selected somebody that we could ask to come in and just help us understand each other, help us go through this process of identity, motivation, conversation, perspective, and revelation? 
Um, and this is just, we, we just need this. You know, this is, this is what we need. Paul knows it, so he says, get help. Get help. And so if you're there and you've tried and it didn't work, get help. Get help. So this brings us into our last point. Why is this all important? You know, I mean, as I think about this, um, boy, <laughs> part of me feels like, why even bother? I mean, I don't know if any of you are feeling that way, but this is kind of crazy when you think about it. Like, really, I got to do all this to understand somebody if I disagree with them? I mean, wouldn't it be better just to show up on Sundays and just sort of do my own thing? You know, just leave? You come, you're happy, you don't really get involved in anything, really, and just leave, and, and, and church just sort of becomes... I mean, it'd be so much easier, wouldn't it? Like, do we really have to go through this process? Like, what's the point? Like, why bother with going through these five? Because this takes a lot of work. It takes understanding. It takes humility. It takes patience. It takes time. And we don't have time. Come on. Um, So why is this important? Well, it's because there's this book. Okay? There's a book. And this book has names in it. And this book, it's called the book of life. Paul talks about it in verse 3. He talks about people whose names are in the book of life. And the names in this book of life are the names of the people who are the citizens of heaven. Okay, I don't know if you remember last week when Bill preached on what citizenship meant in Rome and and all that meant. But in Philippi and in every city in Rome, there was also a book that listed all of its citizens. Okay, it was like a citizenry journal, basically. And in that book, you could go into a city and see which people had the privilege and honor of citizenship bestowed on them. Right? Why would that be important? Well, if you were new to the empire, you could get from this book a list of the people who could show you what Rome was all about, who could show you what it was like to be Roman, who could show you what the good life was, what it was like to follow Caesar. If you wanted to help the Roman Empire flourish, this book would tell you who to watch in a given city. These Roman citizens, by their words, by their conduct, they would show you what the good life was, what a life of blessing was to live in relationship to Lord Caesar. And Paul is saying the exact same thing is true for us. Heaven's citizens are listed in the book of life. If you believe in Jesus, your names are in that book. You know, and so this list of names shows who you could look to to see what it means to live in God's family, what it means to be loved and known by God, what it means to follow Jesus as Lord. This is the list of people who show by their words and their conduct what God really intends life to look like. These are people that will give you an anticipation of what God is going to make the whole world look like in the future. And so to be in this book is this amazing privilege, right? Because you have this amazing inheritance that's in store for you. You are going to experience unending eternal happiness in a perfected city, in a perfected world. But then to be in this book, you've got a a calling. There's a responsibility to begin to live that way today. It's to begin to show people what that way looks like today. 
And I don't know, like when I, as I thought about it, especially this week, I'm not sure that there is a more powerful way to demonstrate what the difference is that Jesus can make in your life than how we treat each other, especially in conflict. That how we deal with conflict and how we respond to it when it comes up. I mean, what if, what if we were a community of people where when people had problems, they would respect each other. They would listen to each other, learn from each other, and they would come out championing the good in the other's perspective. I mean, what would it be like, even if they still disagreed? I mean, what would this, what would it be like if we could agree in the Lord when we disagreed? You know, and I think when we learn to do this in the church, it also then teaches us how to approach conflicts outside the church. You know, how to champion the good in other people's opinions and try to run through the motivation, the same process with folks outside the church. But I just think that if we can learn how to do this with each other, what an amazing contribution this church could make to the city. What if hundreds of people were released into the city who took this approach when it comes to conflict? who dealt with conflict and personal relationships in this way. And again, I mean, is it hard? Yeah, it's really hard. Is it frustrating? (laughs) Absolutely, it's frustrating. But there's this book. And if we want people to want to follow Jesus, we need to show them what it's like. You know, and, and so if you're struggling, I mean, the moment you try to put this into practice, I think it throws you back to Jesus, right? Because how are you going to do this, right? And I, I want to remind you that the command comes after the identity, right? Your only hope in terms of walking in this is to be reminded that you are in Christ. Don't you know? Maybe you've forgotten. Don't you know that you've died to the kind of conflict that breeds hatred and division. You've been raised from the dead. You've been united to Jesus, who was raised from the dead and is living on the other side of death. Jesus is living out his relationships in perfection, and he lives in you. He lives in you. And what's more is that Epaphroditus, this true companion, he points to Jesus. Paul says, true companions support these women. That's Jesus for you. Because when you believe in him, you realize that Jesus isn't just telling you to agree in the Lord, but Jesus has already agreed with you. You are his love. You are his joy. You make him happy. He fills you up. He supports you. And so as you try to do this, every step of the way, Jesus is there with you, in you, under you, around you, loving you. He's filling you. And that's how you grow. That's how you put this into practice. It comes down to 1 John 4.19. Because all we're talking about is really a fancy way of talking about love. And 1 John 4.19 says, We love because he first loved us. Let's pray. Father, we need you so much. 
Jesus, we need you to love us in this way. And I thank you that you have. Thank you that we don't have to wonder whether or not you have loved us, but we see through the cross, through your death and your resurrection, that you have already loved us. You have already given us a new identity. You have cleansed our motivations. You have convinced us to follow you. And you've transformed us in our hearts. God, help us to live out this love to others. And if there are those here who don't believe in you yet, would you draw them with this love? Help them to see that they need this love. And use us, God, in the city. Use us. Help this to be one of the contributions we make so that this city can see more of your son rise. In Jesus' name, amen.